0: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin over our Zoom connection. And Stephanie, today we're continuing our series of great cases. And so our focus today continues to be section seven of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But today we're going to shift gears a bit. We've been talking so far about mostly about the procedural component of section seven. And so what we would call due process or procedural fairness. But today we're shifting gears and we're going to talk about. Uh, actual substantive. And by substantive, I mean uh, rules, if you will, on outcomes, outer bounds of what the government can do uh, in terms of uh, its behavior. Uh, And so we're really going to look at three cases, but I thought maybe, would it be useful for me just to refresh people's memories on section seven and what it says and its overall architecture, do you think?
1: I mean, forget our audience. I think I'd find it useful. I would correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, most of the stuff we've talked about so far seems to have been in the field of your other area of specialty, which is administrative law. I don't want to suggest that you're cheating on national security law, but you also have this other expertise. So, it's about how the laws are actually carried out and their in in the result of that whether or not that violates the section. But what we're going to talk about today is the actual like violation of security and liberty of the person and those fun things.
0: Yeah, right. So again, sort of the outer limit on what the state can do in terms of its conduct. So section seven, just so everyone uh, remembers, says everyone has the right to life, liberty and security of the person. And remember, that really is or security of the person and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with principles of fundamental justice. And in the primer that I prepared in support of the series this Charter Shorts, series that I've been preparing, I noted that, that really there are two features of section seven. There's what I call the trigger. And so at issue has to be a life, liberty, or security of the person. And then there's the, well, what happens if that trigger is pulled? Uh, well, you can only deprive a person of one of these rights in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, which begs the question, well, what's fundamental justice? And so whenever, I
1: did have a question about that, but you know,
0: right. well, I thought we, so I was just
1: trying to be polite.
0: We have had, in part, a conversation about that. And so we started by talking a little bit about what falls within the ambit of life, liberty, and security of the person. And to a certain extent, that's largely intuitive. Uh, but our conversation in the last podcast was really about the subset of fundamental justice that deals with, as I just said, procedural fairness or due process. That is, ensuring that the government, in exercising its power, does so in a procedurally fair manner. And so that largely depends on two broad protections, a right to be heard. And so if, if the government's making a decision that implicates one of your rights, you have a right to be heard. And what that means really depends on the on the context, especially the, the impact on, on that right. And more than that, you're entitled to an unbiased decision maker. And so those two features are really the cardinal aspects of the procedural entitlements in fundamental justice. But now and we're have... me,
1: and just correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, that was the case in Singh, because, which we talked about, I think, in one of the last two episodes, which is where he said, "Well, I have to be able to make an appeal here in person," and that was the decision that the procedure on rejecting his refugee application wasn't handled correctly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
0: And so, while procedure sounds like the sort of things that would make people fall asleep in any given law class, I think you would find, in in terms of the number of instances where the government has been unsuccessful faced with a challenge that procedure often is very, very powerful. Uh, and in the world of judicial review and administrative law, procedural complaints win more often than s- complaints about the outcome. Uh, just because it's more difficult to win the outcome-based complaints.
1: Well, is that because the rules are clear, whereas the a theoretical impact is not?
0: I think it's a I think it's probably two things, two major things. First, often in it's a lot easier to make a procedural mistake in the sense that there is a lot of procedure that one has to adhere to in order to act in a procedurally fair manner, and there's a lot of room to slip up. And the second reason is that the courts will extend more deference typically to an outcome, that is the substance of the decision, because they appreciate that they don't necessarily have the subject matter expertise in relation to whatever decision was made. And so there's an element of deference that the courts will extend in administrative law on outcome based decision making that does not exist to the same degree at least for a process the courts are are quite uh, attentive to procedural standards in terms of ensuring that they're met but that's really just administrative law per se that that's not particular to section 7 so just just to continue our conversation so fundamental justice has got a procedural content but then it also has this substantive aspect of, and again by substantive we really mean does the outcome meet certain expectations that uh, the courts have envisaged as being part of section seven. And, and really here, I'll just give you some sense as to what's folded into that idea of substance. It really looks at things like, especially on the criminal side, whether certain expectations about what has to be in a criminal offense have been met. And so, for example, there's an, there's an requirement that where it's a true crime, there has to be the requisite degree of intent that you really have to intend to do the thing that's a crime called mens rea in criminal law. And in the absence of that mens rea, and that mens rea could vary depending on the nature of the offense, in the absence of that mens rea, that's considered a violation of of fundamental justice, right? So in the criminal law field, some very specific guarantees that are associated with fundamental justice. And then there are a series of more generic guarantees. And so just to give you a sense of the generic guarantees, because we're gonna see some of them today, they're what authors call rationality-based requirements. And so the law in order to survive a challenge under Section 7 on substantive grounds, it can't be arbitrary. It can't be overbroad. It can't be grossly disproportionate. And also it can't be excessively vague. And so we're going to see, especially today, the concept of overbreadth and vagueness because both those concepts, while they recur regularly in national security cases, although rarely are successful, but in one instance, at least in the lower courts, where both concepts were successful is in the Juliet O'Neill case involving the Security of Information Act in 2006. And that's a really interesting case. And so that'll be our our capstone case for today.
1: So is it story time?
0: So it's story time. So we're going to talk about three cases that that touch on the substantive guarantees in Section 7. The first is Operation Dismantle from 1985 from the Supreme Court. The second is Suresh from 2002 from the Supreme Court. And the third, as I've suggested, is the O'Neill case from 2006 in the Ontario Superior Court. So do you want me to launch into the first one?
1: Operation Dismantle. How can we go
0: wrong? Yeah, so Operation Dismantle. This was a lawsuit brought by a consortium of peace groups in the mid-1980s, challenging the then federal cabinet's decision to allow the US government to test cruise missiles in Canada. And so this is at the dawn of the era of cruise missiles. I believe, as, as I recall correctly, I believe the impetus was that Canada had a lot of open land over which one could fly uh, cruise missiles, especially in the North. And so the government, the Canadian government, the cabinet agreed to allow the U.S. to test cruise missiles as an exercise of its prerogative over defense, right? So this was uh, its foreign relations with the United States and then part of its royal prerogative over defense. And I'll come back to why that's significant in a moment. The peace group said, however, that the testing would increase the risk of nuclear war and therefore violated Section 7 by risking the life, liberty, And security of the person of Canadians. So that was their claim, that uh, by testing this weapon system, it would further ignite the arms race. And for those of us who were sentient in the 1980s, you recall that this is the period of renewed superpower tension and concern about the proliferation of nuclear weapons before the end of the Cold War. Uh, And so that's the claim they made in court. They were unsuccessful in the lower courts. In fact, the lower courts struck out their lawsuit, effectively saying that there was no basis for the courts to adjudicate this sort of claim. And that's the issue that went to the Supreme Court. Is this the sort of claim that could be adjudicated in front of a court? And they end up losing. And they lose because the Supreme Court concludes that there's no evidence that could be brought by these groups to uh, prove the implications that they were claiming. And so There's no degree of certainty approaching probability that the testing of the cruise missile system in Canada would ignite the series of detrimental impacts that the groups were claiming. And because there's no causal link between the testing and the injury that the peace groups claimed, there was nothing that could be settled in court. And so the case was bounced effectively from court. But along the way, the Supreme Court made a number of observations about the workings of the charter that continue to resonate to this day and so the first is that in canada the court concluded or at least justice wilson writing a concurring decision and it's never been cast into doubt concluded that there's no so-called political question doctrine in canada are you familiar with the political question doctrine in the u.s have you heard of this stephanie
1: yeah just every day. I'm just like, wow, the political <laughs> well, you, question doctrine. I, I, I'm gonna what are we going to do you. about that?
0: I, I'm going to describe it to you, but I'm sure you've, you're, you're probably familiar with it at an at a anecdotal level. So in the US, there's a whole zone of matters that the courts will not adjudicate because they see those matters as assigned exclusively to another branch of the US state. So for example, foreign affairs is assigned to the executive branch. And so that's a no-go zone for the courts it's more than deference it's absolutely precluded for the courts to adjudicate those sorts of matters because of the their perception of how the us separation of powers between the different branches of government work in canada though there's not that hard barrier and justice wilson made this point she said the courts should not be too eager to relinquish their judicial review function simply because they are called upon to exercise it in relation to weighty matters of state and so to say that there's a zone of Government decision-making where the courts will not go because it's somehow precluded by virtue of the separation of powers. That's just not a position that's been endorsed in Canada. That's important, right? Because you could imagine a whole host of national security matters that were there to be a political question doctrine would simply be unamenable to judicial scrutiny. And so think about the Catter case from just over a decade ago, where at issue was whether the government should seek the return of Omar Khadr to Canada from Guantanamo Bay, a foreign relations issue, if there had been a political question doctrine, the court might well have turned cheek and, and not adjudicated those questions.
1: And uh, yet the, and yet our courts are also very keen not to interfere too much in foreign affairs. And I don't know if this relates to ground prerogative, and I can hear Phil Lagasse somewhere Enjoying this conversation, but I mean the fact is they've also in Catter they specifically say, "Well, look, you're wrong here, government. Yes, you must bring Catter back to Canada, but we can't force you to do it." And there's been other cases where foreign affairs have been involved, where the courts have said we really can't order the government to do things in this way. But you're saying that doesn't mean that the court doesn't opine on them,
0: right? So uh, that's it. So, so political question: the idea that there's a zone from which the courts are excluded because of the separation of powers, doesn't have purchase in Canada. But picking up your point, there are various other legal construals and understandings that have the effect of giving the government a freer range of action in certain areas relative to other areas. And so that's my, my second point about Operation Dismantle, because that issue in this case was the exercise of a prerogative power. And so recall, you mentioned Phil Legasse so this is one of Phil Lagasse's favorite areas. The prerogative is the historic residue of powers once exercised by the monarchs of England that have not yet been displaced by a statute that occupies that same subject matter terrain. And so they remain extant, they remain in existence. And they're really seen, they're called the inherent powers of the executive branch that exist at common law. That is, they exist by a tradition that's been recognized by the common law courts. And So the two that are most important that still exists in Canada, and to a considerable degree also in the United Kingdom, are the royal prerogative of defense and the royal prerogative in relation to foreign affairs. And so you can see how both uh, of those historic royal prerogative powers are implicated by a decision to allow testing of the cruise missile system by the United States and Canada. And So the question that the court had to ask was, well, is the exercise of royal prerogative, in this case by cabinet, is it subject to judicial scrutiny under the Charter? Or is the prerogative some special creature that is not subject to scrutiny by the Charter? It's immune from Charter. And I suppose it's no surprise to learn that the court concluded, well, no. I mean, the fact that it's a prerogative power, as opposed to a power that exists under a statute, doesn't put it on a different footing in terms of the application of the Charter. And so cabinet, when it's exercising a prerogative power, in this case, a prerogative power that might touch on Section 7 of the Charter. It has a duty to act in a manner that's consistent with the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, right? And so prerogative is not magic. It's no different in terms of the application of the Charter to it. And so that's really an important conclusion.
1: Does Phil know it's not magic?
0: <laughs> well.
1: He's listened to this podcast. I also, I just like the word residue, monarchical Residue could be. We, we're going to
0: have to work that into a title sometime. It is. And I'm I'm sure that Phil would consider it too pejorative a description of the prerogative, but I, I like it because I think it's apt. But coming to your point, uh, Stephanie, about this issue of courts, nevertheless, perhaps sometimes being more accommodating of the exercise of some powers, it's not that the power is a prerogative that matters. It's rather the nature of that prerogative power. And so there is a jurisprudence that distinguishes between different sorts of prerogatives. And so a case involving Conrad Black that went to the Ontario Court of Appeal at issue was the then Prime Minister's interventions with the Queen about Mr. Black's entitlement to certain awards bestowed within the United Kingdom. And Mr. Black was quite unhappy about the intervention of the Prime Minister and sued the Prime Minister. And at issue was whether the court considered this discussion between the Prime Minister and the Queen as a sort of thing amenable to judicial deliberation. In other words, was it judiciable? Could it be reduced to a judicial dispute? And the court concluded, look, I mean, this sort of thing, this arbitrary or discretionary bestowal of awards is just not the kind of thing that lends itself to a dispute that can be determined by a court. Uh, However, said the court, it's not so much that this is a prerogative, the royal prerogative to bestow these sorts of honors, because we can imagine circumstances where at issue would be decisions under the prerogative that do implicate human rights. There, the prerogative remains amenable to judicial scrutiny. And so even in Operation Dismantle, you see Justice Wilson saying, for example, if the government had decided to conscript people, the people who were conscripted would have a right of action, challenging, for example, the implications of their conscription for their life, liberty, and security of the person. Or this is another example that Justice Wilson gives. If the government decided to test nerve gas, On a population. Well, obviously, section seven would be implicated, even though both of those examples would be the exercise of a prerogative of defense. And so it's not, again, that the prerogative is somehow beyond the purview of the charter. It's rather is the subject matter of the exercise of that prerogative the sort of thing that gives rise to a dispute in which an individual interest is implicated, analogous to the sorts of things that are are issue with human rights and the like.
1: Right. So in this case of Operation Dismantle, the finding is that okay, it's too general; it's not specific enough. Whereas in the case like of a of specific targeting of someone using, I don't know, a crown prerogative power, where there's a demonstrable harm on someone that is being done, there, there's a difference between these two cases.
0: Yeah, I think so. Although in Operation Dismantle, the court doesn't really engage the question of whether these people's Section Seven entitlements could be implicated by a decision to build a weapon system. The issue was that these people couldn't prove that there was a heightened risk of nuclear war. But let's assume you could prove causality. And and so the question then becomes, if you could prove causality, would this still be too much a matter of high politics, if you will? And the court would turn the cheek on the question of whether it should be adjudicated as a Section 7 matter. And I think there's uncertainty on that issue. So let's assume the government of Canada decides in 2003 that it's going to join the U.S., invasion of Iraq, uh, which most people regard as having been done in non-compliance with the UN Charter. And by most people, I'm talking about most international lawyers outside of the United Kingdom, Australia, and the United States. Uh, So uh, that military action is not in compliance with the UN Charter limitations on the use of force. Nevertheless, let's assume the government of Canada deploys the Canadian Armed Forces in support of that mission. Is the decision to deploy the Canadian Armed Forces amenable to judicial scrutiny, whether on charter grounds or just generally as an administrative law matter? Well, it's obviously the exercise of a prerogative, but is it a high politics prerogative of the sort that really can't be reduced to judicial determinations, or is it the kind of thing that implicates rights and therefore is amenable to deliberation by course?
1: Something, it's, it sounds like it has to be something a little bit more... Or less ethereal, like something that's a little bit more concrete
0: than high politics in the abstract. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, there was one case, it was a civil lawsuit that was brought uh, against the Canadian Armed Forces in relation to the participation in the bombing campaign in Kosovo. And the lower court in that case said that this is not judiciable. It's a matter of high politics. It's just that you can imagine how that participation in an armed conflict has implications that involve the rights of individuals. And so it seems to fall on that adjudication side of the dichotomy set out in, in black, but it's much more diffuse, if you will, and it's, it's closely tied to, to, to larger questions of foreign affairs and defense of the sort that courts would be really uncomfortable adjudicating. So uh, at the end of the day, it's not clear to me where a court would come out on, on those sorts of questions were it to go up the appeal chain and all the way to the Supreme Court. I, I would tend to suggest that it probably would be considered non-judiciable, but on the other hand, if it were done in non-compliance with the UN Charter and the custom international law limitations on use of force, you have to ask yourself: Well, it's generally the case that international law is part of the common law of Canada, unless displaced by a statute. And to the extent you're relying on the prerogative as your basis for deploying the Canadian Armed Forces, it's really a common law power. And so, how you how do you reconcile the notion that You're exercising a common law power to dispatch the armed forces, and at the same time, you're doing so in a way that violates the UN Charter, or at least the customary rules on use of force. You have to reconcile those things, right? And so who's going to reconcile those things if the government decides not to do it itself? Could you go to court and say, court, we really should be able to judicially review this exercise of the prerogative because it's a non-compliance with Canada's international obligations. And there's no other way for this to come uh, before you, except if you know I, as an individual, bring a public interest case or whatever. So it's just not clear to me what would happen in those cases. So the last point I'll make on this is that the other way, Stephanie, in which courts sometimes pull their punches confronted with these sorts of circumstances where at issue are matters where courts are not used to adjudicating is just by uh, applying conventional understandings of deference. And so they're more deferential, if you will, where they lack expertise. And there's a margin of maneuver that the executive branch will have in terms of the court's willingness to second guess or armchair quarterback outcomes in these sorts of areas. So that's Operation Dismantle. We, we talked about much more than Operation Dismantle, but those are the sorts of issues that are really raised both at the charter level and then more generally in public law by a case like Operation Dismantle. You want to move on to Suresh?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I just want to say that was a pretty interesting case. It got some nuclear weapons there, some good old 1980s Reaganite military stuff. You know, it's a good throwback. I Some, I some prerogative. That. Some prerogative. Yeah. There's something there for everybody. But yeah, let's let's do Suresh. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is a refugee case of someone who was alleged to be a part of the LTTE and it involves issues with regards to who had all the documents, torture, all these kinds of fun things.
0: Yeah. So Suresh, we, we've talked about Suresh in passing in our conversation about the procedural guarantees in section seven, uh, because the Suresh case actually engaged both the substantive side of the House and the procedural side of the House in terms of fundamental justice. But you're right. This is actually an early security certificate case. Uh, the statutory framework was a bit different back then in 2002, but it was a security certificate. Uh, and so under the security certificate, essentially the minister can declare a person to be a danger of the security of Canada and in so doing set in train a removal process. This is really immigration law,
1: right?
0: It's immigration law, right? And so it's a removal process, even though a person may be a refugee. And remember, if they're a refugee, they have a well-founded fear of persecution in their country of origin. So the issue that engages us today is whether Mr. Suresh could be removed, even if that removal gave rise to a substantial risk of torture in the state to which he was removed, in this case, presumably Sri Lanka. And the court, in answering that question, said that generally speaking, it would violate Section 7, and so substantively violate Section 7 fundamental justice, if a person were removed to torture in a third country. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. So the first is one we've mentioned already, that Section 7 is concerned not just with the act of removal, but the consequences of removal downstream. And so here, it wouldn't be the government of Canada that was inflicting the torture, it would be the third state down the pipe. But nevertheless, the court said that effectively that by starting the causal link, by removing this person in circumstances where there was a substantial risk of torture, that's enough to trigger Section 7 and engage your obligation government not to uh, violate fundamental justice. And so I call this the domino effect. If you start the dominoes of falling, uh, then y- you can roll back to the first domino and say, oh, that engages Section 7. This is a bit different than Operation Dismantle. There, it was too speculative, the connection between the right, li- right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the conduct of the government. Here, it wasn't particularly speculative, right? In the sense that there was evidence suggesting that there was, in fact, a substantial risk of torture upon removal. So that's the first aspect that's interesting in this case. The, the second is that the court was quite adamant that the principles of fundamental justice are informed by international law. And so international law has a very robust prohibition on removing persons where there's a substantial risk of torture. You find that especially in Article 3 of the UN Torture Convention. And it's an absolute prohibition. It's subject to no limitations. And so it's not like there's an override, even in, in circumstances where the life of the nation might be peril. It's an absolute prohibition. Uh, and so the court said that in reading Section 7, Fundamental Justice, and deciding what's included within its ambit, That will be informed by international law, at least those international law instruments that apply to Canada as a matter of international law. So that was another interesting feature and that resuscitates an earlier line of jurisprudence that looked to international law and in terms of informing how the court was going to interpret the charter of rights and freedoms, especially obviously international human rights law. And then the last uh, point um, I'll make is that the court concluded that fundamental justice in terms of substance stood in the way of government conduct that was so extreme that it was per se disproportionate to any legitimate governmental interest. And so intentionally removing someone to torture might be that sort of conduct. But that's not really where the court lands. The court says that generally the minister is obliged to conform with principles of fundamental justice and deciding whether to remove uh, people in Mr. Suresh's circumstances and should therefore generally decline to remove. Where there's a substantial risk of torture but it goes on and it it issues this infamous assertion we do not exclude the possibility that in exceptional circumstances deportation to face torture might be justified either as a consequence of a balancing process mandated by section seven of the charter or under section one and that's the so-called sures exception and it was highly controversial attracted a fair degree of condemnation, both in the literature, but also from the UN human rights community, because it seems to take a much less absolute view on removal to torture than does international law. International law says- no exceptional yeah. circumstances whatsoever and the Supreme Court is saying well we can imagine exceptional circumstances.
1: Yeah no I was going to say I mean that I was like well, as soon as you said that it's kind of like well there may be some time where this we've seen this elsewhere like in the um, in c bill C59 which of course is the bill that overhauled our terrorism national security legislation they incorporated a, a ministerial directive on information sharing and torture where they say well there's no absolute prohibition on the practice it's heavy, heavily regulated but they say well, there may be some circumstances where this is still warranted so is this like a canadian thing that no. that we really see or is it recognition that not all torture is the same for example one of the issues you may have is anyone who's in jail in a say a developing country is probably going to be held in conditions that we would consider to be torture. So if someone's going to be sent back to that country and immediately put in prison, they could plausibly make an argument that they are being tortured. So is that what the, the concession is here? Because it it really is a bit of a head-scratcher with regards to, to how they came to this decision.
0: Yeah, so a couple of points. So first on the information sharing, you're right that now under what I call the Complicity Act, the prohibition on information sharing produces complicity with torture which was added to Bill C-59 after first reading in the House of Commons, Uh, you're right that there are ministerial directions that have been issued, and they're actually no longer ministerial. They're from the governor and council. Right now, in their present form, there is an absolute prohibition on outbound information sharing where there's a substantial risk of torture, which is a modification of the standard in 2011. The difference is that if, and and this is a, a matter that might be contested, but it's much harder to find in international law standards that govern information sharing. Uh, in international law, though, you can find very clearly in the Torture Convention in Article Three, a limitation, a prohibition, an absolute prohibition on removals in circumstances where there's a substantial risk of torture. And so the absolute bar is much clearer in relation to removals than it seems to me would be true for information sharing. Now, you asked why did the court come up with this concoction I honestly don't know. I suspect that when you've got, I assume it was nine judges, the full panel deliberating over trying to find a consensus, there might be some give and take uh, that these things are drafted by committee to a certain extent. But uh, I also think that the Suresh exception may now no longer exist in the sense that while the Supreme Court's never pulled it back, it has since repeatedly said that the charter is to be construed to the extent possible as compliant with canada's international human rights obligations and to the extent possible means that article 3 should apply in its full form so it's not clear to me that if push came to shove and this matter were to return to the supreme court on the question of removal to torture that the supreme court would embrace the suresh exception now in terms of lower court practice i'm aware of only one case at the federal court level where someone was Removed, notwithstanding a substantial risk of torture, so the immigration law continues to allow that as a possibility. I'm only aware of one case where the that decision survived judicial review, and all the other cases where this has come up, or at least in most of the cases where it's come up, the federal court has looked to things like assurances, diplomatic assurances from the state in question that they will not torture, uh, and this comes up also with removals to death penalty uh, and so these diplomatic assurances are sort of a supplemental promise that the state won't engage in torture. And and what that does is it might mitigate the substantial risk of torture, that if there's a supplemental guarantee that perhaps there's no longer a substantial risk. Now, what's interesting in Suresh is that the Supreme Court casts some shade on on the virtue of these diplomatic assurances. And, And we've talked about this in the past too, Stephanie. One has to be a bit skeptical about a supplemental promise to not do something that, usually the state's own laws, and international law already says are firmly prohibited. So an extra piece of paper on top of paper becomes just a supplemental paper promise. At issue, it seems to me is more the factual circumstances. There are some countries where Canada might exercise some leverage such that the country uh, in question might be reluctant to transgress a supplemental promise to Canada. But there are many countries in this world where I suspect they couldn't care less whether uh, the relationship with Canada on future removals and the like might or might not be uh, disturbed, and so I think you have to look it at it on a fact by fact basis or a fact specific basis at any rate.
1: this has been pretty good in the sense that well, actually everything's terrible that we're talking about, but uh, operation dismantle okay it's it's not general enough for uh, section seven to apply Suresh it's very specific it's going to be on an individual, and the act can be attributed to the state, the domino. Um, effects that I think you've talked about. So you've mentioned a third case. This is what, yeah. so where does this one fall? This is the fifth, O'Neill fifth case. Years.
0: Yeah, this Six is years. Julie O'Neill. All right. So this is our case that really goes to the question of vagueness and overbreath. Okay. So the story here Miss O'Neill at the time was a reporter for the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, and at the time of the Mahara Rar Commission of Inquiry in the Knots, so 2003, 2004, the uh, Ottawa Citizen reported on certain, well, I'll call them rumors, certain allegations about Mr. Arar that had been leaked from unknown persons within the government of Canada that were pejorative. Uh, The information in question was considered by the government to be classified. I don't know at what level. And the RCMP began an investigation under the Security of Information Act, which is what used to be called the Official Secrets Act. And the investigation was mounted under a provision in the Security of Information Acts known as Section 4, which is in the colloquial sense called an anti-leakage provision. And Section 4, I'm, I'm tempted to read it to you, but I fear that in the 10 minutes it would take me to read this provision, everyone would turn off their podcast recorders and perhaps throw their phone into the lake because it is the most obtuse and ill-drafted provision Well. The Law Reform Commission in 1986 said this and a handful of provisions in the Criminal Code were the worst drafted provisions of Canadian law. It has remained on the books largely intact and unmodified since the original Official Secrets Act in Canada in 1939. And it actually is modeled on the original British Official Secrets Act in 1889. So it has all the cadence of the 19th century. It also has all the ambiguity. Of a law drafted to capture a whole bunch of things that the government really didn't know that it needed to capture, but wanted to be sure that it could capture just in case it had to capture. So right away, I've given you some senses to its vagueness. And so, Miss O'Neill, her apartment and or her house or premises and her business in the Ottawa Citizen were raided by the RCMP, and the Ottawa Citizen, on her behalf, challenged the legitimacy of this search, and so. What happens is it goes to Ontario Superior Court, and the challenge is mounted under a number of constitutional rights, but most particularly Section 7. And the court concludes that this provision in the Official Secrets Act, or now the Security of Information Act, is unconstitutionally vague. It's unconstitutionally vague. Why? Because the law is so imprecise that it doesn't give guidance for legal debate. The law must be precise enough that people understand their obligations with a reasonable degree of certainty. And because of the way that section four is drafted, that doesn't exist. And essentially the government can level criminal accusations against people just by leveling criminal accusations against people. And so broadly drafted to section four that the conventional leakages of government uh, information, because it extends beyond secret information, it really has to be official government information. Any official government information that is leaked, it becomes a crime. It becomes a crime not only to leak it, but it becomes a crime to keep it. And so you can see right away that the breadth of this law is such that you would not necessarily know if it's official government or secret government information. None of these things are defined. And so the court concludes vagueness. It also says overbreadth for much the same reason, right? That the law is so sweeping that it captures conduct well beyond anything that's reasonable in the circumstances. And so for those two reasons, the court concludes there's a violation of Section 7 as well. The offenses don't actually prescribe the the mens rea. They don't indicate what sort of intent you have to have in, in a number of instances. And that, too, is a violation of Section 7.
1: So this is getting a little away from Section 7. Everything you said makes sense. But it's interesting. I think the courts recognize that journalists have certain roles in society as well. With regards to information, we saw this a little bit in the case with Vice Media, which is a whole other different case, but it was a case where the RCMP were trying to compel Vice Magazine and a Vice Magazine uh, reporter to actually give up information because they had been talking to someone who allegedly belonged to the uh, Islamic State, and they wanted um, more information that the journalists had on that. And the Supreme Court ultimately does side with the RCMP, and they say, yes, journalists have the support roles, but there may be circumstances under which it is appropriate for... uh, journalists to be forced to hand over this information. So I'm wondering, do these protections fall anywhere in the charter? It's a little off topic, but uh, since you brought up this O'Neill case, which is pretty famous, um, how does this work? Section two. Okay. Yeah.
0: So section two of the charter, we'll do some sessions on section two, but it's freedom of expression, but also it protects the press. So we'll talk about section two. And in fact, the court in O'Neill, it talks about section two being violated as well, just that we haven't talked about section two. So we haven't mentioned it today. But to your broader point about the role of journalists, so um, eh, journalists are not immunized from the regular criminal law. And so it wasn't that, that Ms. O'Neill was a journalist per se that made this law inherently offensive. If this had been another criminal code offense that was more properly drafted and, and met the standards of Section 7, then it would be a different story. But it, it happened to be that Miss O'Neill was a journalist, but the, the law is unconstitutional vis-a-vis anyone not just journalists, because it's-
1: Right, so this it's, would apply to anyone. Anyway, the journalistic role here didn't really apply to the violation of Section 7.
0: Exactly. And so uh, the interesting thing is that this is a lower court case. And why aren't we talking about it as a Supreme Court case? Well, because the state lost, the government of Canada lost, and chose not to appeal. And so there is no appellate case in, on the scope of Section 4 of the Security of Information Act and its constitutionality. And yet, if one were to quickly Google Security of Information Act, one will find that Section 4 remains on the books. It has not been repealed or replaced, notwithstanding the fact that the analog in the United Kingdom, which is going under further revision, as I understand it, saw an announcement, is much more nuanced and might well survive constitutional scrutiny here. So it's not like you couldn't draft a better anti-leakage law. We just haven't. And so for all those people within government who are asked to sign various statements that they acknowledge their potential culpability under the Security of Information Act, including Section 4, you're being asked to sign a statement that you acknowledge your potential culpability under a provision the Superior Court of Ontario concludes is unconstitutional because Parliament has not got around to enacting uh, a revised version of this provision.
1: Craig, I don't think we should be using this podcast to help people question their life choices.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not that there aren't other provisions of the Security of Information Act that apply. That's the issue, that uh, about three quarters of the Security of Information Act was amended in 2001 uh, to modernize it. And so uh, from time to time, We've talked about some of those provisions. Persons permanently bound by secrecy are subject to specific provisions about sharing uh, certain classes of protected information. And so that's at issue in some of the prosecutions we've talked about from time to time on this podcast. But it's Section 4 that's the problem. And so one wonders why, A, in 2001, when the rest of the Security of Information Act was amended, why Section 4 was left intact in all its glory. And one wonders, B, why it hasn't subsequently been amended. I fear that with the passage of time, that frankly, a a lower court decision from 2006 doesn't necessarily stick in people's minds, right? And so uh, I have to wonder how Section 4 is deployed from time to time, not necessarily in legal proceedings, but at at least in terms of stern warnings and and deterrence and the like. Uh, And of course, it's quite disturbing that a Provision that is patently, I think, unconstitutional. I don't think there was any doubt about the merits of the lower court's decision. Uh, is still there, lurking like an unexploded munition in the statute book.
1: You know, this makes me think that, like, one day we need to do a podcast on like the top five worst national security laws. <laughs> we should. I think that would be a great podcast. We should totally do that. We could. We could. Be, we'll see if this one hits number one. But uh, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, this would be my number one choice. Uh, unquestionably okay. i mean you can't take well, that
1: spoiler alert okay i guess we don't need to do the podcast now
0: you can't take language from 1889 and think it's going to pass muster you know more than more than a century later you know, almost a century and a half later so yeah
1: but changing things is hard um <laughs> <you know. laughs> it's like it's it's like uh, authentic law like you know what, what, what they call it like artisan original antique law right.
0: you it's a just... renewal of 2100, you know, it's, <laughs> it's
1: all good. So where do we go from here? Is this all of section seven? Yeah, I think that's what um, we're
0: going to do for section seven. That's think... a
1: lot because this is three hours worth of section seven. Section so... seven
0: is, is mammoth because of how much meaning has been breathed into section seven. If one were to look at it and say 1982 and imagine how it might have grown, I don't know that many people would have predicted its its current trajectory or scope. So that's why it takes so much time. The next rate right I think we need to set up is section eight. Uh, Yay! So-
1: we <laughs> Our hope good to friend, have a... section eight. What is a search? I don't know.
0: Yeah, so we'll do section eight. I think we'll try to do another series that is specific to warrants, but at least we'll set up section eight because that will allow us also then to put section seven and section eight together when we talk about Garofoli And and I know you really want to talk about Garafoli, so you can just make ice it cream. Just because it sounds like an ice cream, cream flavor.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It does. Just, it sounds delicious. I can't wait to try uh, it. Yeah.
0: Uh, and so right. we'll do section eight and then we'll do section two and then we'll call it a day.
1: Oh, Craig, you make a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I doubt it. But anyway, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this was, uh, no, I, I appreciate it. It's interesting to see like it, when you, when you show how these cases have moved through the system, you can see, I like that expression. I like the amount of life that has been breathed into this section. I think that that was a very good way of describing it. Cause that's what it seems like as we've gone through these different historical cases that have shaped the way it looks like now. So well done.
0: Great. And thanks to everyone who survived uh, yet another great cases episode and we'll be back uh, in due course.
1: Sounds great.